Welcome to the Broken Pie Jar Podcast, episode 210. I'm your host, Derek Moore. With me once again is my semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Doing good, Derek. Look, I, I feel like uh, I'm getting a little jealous. You've been having Mike on, you're pushing me out. Like Now I got to fight for my spot, I feel. Well, it is a competition, much like F1. If you want to stay on the grid, you got to stay performing. And I got to tell you, a lot of a lot of good comments from Mike. So you got to really bring it this week, Jay. I, I'll try to bring it to keep <laughs> up with Mike. <laughs> Mike's great. At this point, yeah, no, absolutely. You, you've got first position right now, though. So uh, we'll see if you can keep Both it today, Jay. All right. Well, let me start here. There's every number of people. I, I always love... People you know, send us charts. We find charts online. And lately, somebody said, hey, this bear market, and they're saying the bear market started in 2021. Well, and it didn't start, but they're tracking like the market from 2021 to now and from 1999 to 2001. And the audience can't see this, but they, they've made this relationship where they say, these two markets are tracking really similar. And the inference, I think, is that the bear market still has more room to go on the downside. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, if the market's going to continue to be a bear market, you'd expect it like in 01 and 02 to be drawn out and go down further. I don't know, Jay. I mean, is this, is this a chart crime? I hate it. I hate it. This is- <laughs> Why don't I don't I won't hold back on this one. So look, like I feel like you know you could lay over any you know bear market over what we just went through, and if the, if the point that they're trying to make is hey there are a lot of rallies in the middle of a bear market, fine, I agree with that. But the similarities between the, these lines to me is is not there. I would almost say like if you wanted to line up that July June July bottom and the October you know, September bottom with this, uh, you know, the other one from 2000 to 2001, then fine. That would tell me that the bottom is in already. But this one is, it's just, you know, I think we could have laid anything over. I don't know why they picked this time frame. Um, I, yeah, chart crime, chart crime, making it feel the way Ooh. you want it to feel what's happened here. So who is this by the daily shot? Is that who posted it? Well, that's, that's who tweets it out. This is BC. Symbol for standard deviation research. So, all right. Well, maybe, they should be shot. Yeah. That's how I feel. Shoot this chart. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By the way, all right, I'm going to bring up another relationship. And I think this is so cool. I don't know what the heck to do with this. Bloomberg's Tracy Alloway. She, she's been putting this out for a while. She's a co-host of the uh, Odd Lots podcast, which is, is a really interesting podcast on Bloomberg. She traces the price of Bitcoin against the price of avocados. Again, I have no idea what to do with this, Jake, but boy, this looks cool, doesn't it? I'm. Uh, it's funny. It's funny to take those two things and throw them on a chart, and they both have been trending sideways since July, right, at the low end of their range. But, you know, look, Bitcoin bottomed out, you know, much sooner, like December, January of 2022, whereas avocado was at its all-time high at that point. But, you're right. If you go back, you know, the last, uh, what's the time frame you'd say on this, right? That's when do they, when are they trend together? Is that July, August timeframe? Yeah. Five. I think this goes back to Five. 22 or something. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, sorry. Actually, I, I misspoke. I was reading the June as a January. So June of 2022, avocados were at their all time. Is that all time high? It must be. I remember how expensive. I have no clue. Avocados I have no were. idea. Jay, I follow a lot of markets. I do not follow the Haas avocado market, Jay. I am inept at that one. You guys out on the West Coast and your avocado toast and here in Florida too. Yeah, what are you going to do? You got you got to track avocados. I don't know what to tell you about this one. <laughs> this is brilliant. You want to rub your Bitcoin on some toast. There you go. Yeah, I mean, well, it, avocados might be worth more than Bitcoin at some point, but that's another discussion, Jay, where you and I <laughs> are on opposite sides of the the aisle there. I feel this is going to be a good one today. We're going to be battling this whole discussion today, Derek. <laughs> All right. So everyone, uh, all right. So let's let's bring it back to the market. Something I noticed recently, I ran some analysis, which really just means I downloaded some stuff and put it into a chart to make myself look smarter than I really am. And what I did was I looked at the yield spread between two things, double B bonds. So double B are like the highest rung of uh, high yield bonds or junk bonds. And I, I looked at their yield minus the yield on two-year treasuries and minus the yield of, of the three-month treasury. And what you find is, so, so the way to think about this, when, when yields are very narrow, that difference is very small, it's narrow, you're not getting paid as much of a premium on high-yield bonds versus treasuries. And what I found was that looking at the double Bs over two years, um, it's the lowest it's been since probably 19, but then you go back to 2007, in double Bs over three-month treasuries, which let's be honest, that's a three-month, that's the risk-free rate, you're only getting like 200 basis points above the risk-free rate. So it's like, okay, I'll hold high-yield bonds or I could hold a risk-free asset. And I don't know, Jay, I mean, it, it, this is one of those things where you look at this and you say, okay, well, high-yield bonds have to, have to come down in price and yields have to rise, which would increase the yield spread. I don't know. Maybe there's some weakness ahead in high yield. I don't know. What do you think? Why has it got to be that way? Like, I, like there's two ways that this math works, Derek, right? So you're right. Uh, yields on high yield could go up and then this spread would even out. Or the yield on the on the treasury could drop. Right? That's another way that this fixes itself. Fixes. Fair enough. Normalize, normalizes. So like, yeah, like. I don't know. Like, uh, by the way, it, it has been, you're, you're absolutely right that um, uh, this relationship has existed. And it seems that when this, this spread narrows the most uh, was, you know, kind of before some rocky times in the market, right? 07 was a pretty low time. Uh, I, you know, I don't see this issue, by the way, in 2000, 2001, although you chose to show that as the bear market we're going to follow earlier. So, you know, I'm starting to see a theme with you here today. Um, the 07 was a, was a time where it was low. You're right, 2019 was a time that it was low, uh, right? So that was kind of right before, uh, you know, the pandemic. So was that matter? Yeah, maybe. But there wasn't anything around the 18 time when the market sold off. And look, this whole year, when you, when you take a look at this, you know, we, I remember lots of dialogue that we've had around the spread between high yield and treasuries. Um, at the beginning of 2021, sorry, beginning of 22, and the you know the first quarter of 22, yeah, there's a lot of discussion around that. And yet, you know, where's the trouble in the high yield market? Is there any? Like, tell me where that is. 
Well, I've mentioned on, in the past, I mean, we went last couple of months, I think towards the end of the year, there were no defaults in the high yield space as far as I could tell. And, you know, the next thing I would tell you is that we, I was looking at another chart from JP Morgan and they looked at the interest expense for, let's say, U.S. companies as a percent of their operating cash flow. So in other words, like, what's their cash flow and then what's their interest? And what you find is, I think if I'm reading this chart right, and it's about 10%. In 1990, it was 35%. And I think what that shows, Jay, is that number one is companies locked in low rates. They locked it in before rates went up. And I know just from following the average of when high-yield debt matures, they call it the, you know, the, the wall of debt maturity or debt maturity wall or something like that. It's a wall and it it's debt and it matures, but I don't think a lot of the, <laughs> debt, yeah, it doesn't, yeah, but I, most of the debt doesn't mature. That's outstanding until 24, 25, 26. So yeah, I mean, spreads are, spreads are narrow. And by the way, when we use spreads, it's yield to maturity. It's not the coupon. So, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, companies, their interest expense is pretty low right now relative to their cash flows. And um, yeah, I mean, this seems like good news, right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think from the the payments, it's it's good news, right? That they companies were smart, right? They you know they they have a lower debt rate now than they had you know in the past because rates were really low. I think that made a ton of sense. And you know, and not to go back to this point, but on the the spread, look, I, I there is there's real math behind this, right? I get it. I get what it indicates, and I get. Why that's such a concern? Uh, I just you know it doesn't seem to be cracking that market just yet. I mean, and and it doesn't it can last for a little while, right? Like uh, I'm looking, you know, I know it's hard for anybody to see this, but this level where we were, if you just take the the two year difference, right? It lasted from you know all of 2018, all of 2019, right? It lasted for years. It doesn't mean anything is imminent. That's right. I mean, what's the old saying? Markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, and that doesn't necessarily apply here. But yeah, I mean, things go where they go, and sure, we have these these relationships. But I agree with you. I mean, we're not seeing a lot of problems in the high yield market right now, and I think uh, you know, kudos to them for locking in low rates and issuance of high yield bonds have not been that high. Meaning companies aren't necessarily going to the high yield market in, in any size. So, all right. So this is one of those, Jay, as we always say, I'll let you know when it happens, right? Yeah, it matters when it matters. It matters when it matters. Uh, well, also hats off to, I guess we could say homeowners. This is a Goldman Sachs chart that we're looking at. And this is distribution of outstanding 30-year conventional mortgage borrower rates. That's a fancy way from saying, if you look at a chart, and you look at all the, the mortgages that are outstanding, where do people borrow at? And most people, I'm just going to eyeball this, most people are below 4% in their, their mortgage rate. And I don't know. I think it's great. Doesn't this say, though, that, that even if home prices go down, even if mortgage rates are, let's say, even if mortgage rates are higher, most people aren't going to have a problem with those because they're already locked in. I don't know what it says to people being able to move, but I mean, this seems like from a personal finance standpoint, 
this is good news, right? Yeah, I, I think it is good. I, you know, could think of a few personal stories of people that, you know, got bought a home in 2020, 2021 and got really low rates. Uh, I, funny story. I know someone that was 78 years old, got a 30 year loan at two and three quarters. I don't, I don't know how he got that loan, but he did. And uh, he listens. So he knows who I'm talking about. But I, you know, like, but look, that, that that's great from a perspective that household cash flow gets the benefit of lower rates. I think it's going to end up being a little bit of a problem where people are kind of stuck in that rate, though, whereas you won't get as much turnover in homes because now you want to get a new rate or take an equity loan because I think it's probably fair to say a lot of folks have equity in their homes. Now that HELOC or you know moving to a different house, a uh, different home, you're not going to be as likely to do it. So you're almost like you're stuck because it's too good and you don't want to get out of it, right? Like, I wonder if that ends up having kind of an adverse effect on the uh, on the real estate market. I mean, I shouldn't say I wonder. It will. Um, higher rates always do. But, you know, from a personal perspective, that when people think about the cash flow within their household, um, I think that they're going to want to keep that low rate for a while. And I'm not sure how much, you know, well, I'm not sure how long it'll take to get back down to those rates that we saw. But it's pretty, pretty, it's great for current households. I think it makes it tough for the moves. It is good for current households. And another, I mean, this is one of those things. I have no idea where the real estate market's going to go. It's not a market I'm an expert in. In fact, Jay, we, we always say we I'm buy an edge and equity market, even though. In there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we don't try and tie a market. So that's why we buy an edge, uh, you know. If anyone wants to know how we do that, uh, Derek.more at ZegaFinancial.com, D-E-R-K dot M-O-O-R-E at T is in Zebra, E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple, financials up to you to spell correctly.com. All right. Yeah. But I mean, that could keep inventory low too. And I've heard just from some realtors out here in, in the Scottsdale, Arizona area saying inventory is really low. And part of it is if you have one of these low rates, like if you sell your house and you buy something else. You get out of a 3% mortgage and you got to go to a 6% mortgage. So maybe that helps the, the housing market stay higher than it is. Uh, but who knows on that? I don't know. We'll see when we see. I'll tell you who's not done a good job of locking in lower rates, and that's the national, uh, our, our federal government, Jay. They're, uh, they have some issues. And the issue is our debt keeps rising. And, you know, despite the debt going up really, uh, I mean, uh, quite a bit over the last, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years, the net interest payments have not gone up quite as much. And that's because interest rates have been low. So, Jay, I don't know if you know this, but uh, in 2022, the estimate is the federal debt held by the public so debt's actually $30 trillion, but it's only $24.3 trillion held by the public. The other stuff is like loaning it out. It's like loaning out to your kid, but everybody lives in the same house. You know, they, Right, right. So this is not held by the government when you say loaned out to the public. Right, right. It's not intergovernmental loaning, but $24.3 trillion, And the interest payment's going to be about $680 billion, And that's going up. The average interest rate I calculate is about 2.8%. And the average maturity of outstanding debt, 
meaning what are the treasury bonds that are out there? About 5.17 years. So Jay, here's the quick math. I say, let's say that debt grows annually at 6%. And I think that's actually like <laughs> looking at the last 10 or 20 years. And let's say that the average annual interest rate, average, yeah, the interest rate average on all the, the borrowing, when and the government borrows, they issue treasury bonds. It goes to 5%. Jay, we'd go from $680 billion in interest to like $1.2, 1 $1.3 in interest really quick in the next year or two. Um, that would be kind of difficult for the government. And to put this in perspective, Jay, the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, says that net interest payments are going to be $640 billion. By the way, I don't know how they average they said that because I just gave you a different number for 22, but it's their number. It's not mine. And that makes up 10% of the federal budget, which is 6.2 trillion. Of course, that also assumes we borrow only 1.4 trillion next year. So Jay, to me, this is a big deal. I don't know when it's going to be a big deal, but what do you think? I mean, this is a problem, right? So I, I never liked this discussion because of a couple of the assumptions that we make. But our, the, the general comment or the general issue of, hey, as rates go higher, the government will have to pay more and it will become a bigger portion of the budget. Yep, I understand. I agree with that. It was actually one of the arguments you and I have made in the past as to why, you know, uh, there might be a little bit of, a, you know, a tamper on the uh, – on the, on the amounts that, that rates go up. But look, I, I can appreciate your math on this. I think you made some assumptions that all debt is immediately changing from, you know, two and a half percent today on average to 5%. It's not the case. This is only on new debt that gets issued. I think people don't always realize that when, uh, you know, when you raise the rates, it doesn't change the coupon of the existing bonds, right? Of that 24 trillion outstanding debt, you know, that rate is what it is. It doesn't change because the Federal Reserve changed. Those are not floating rates. Those coupons are, sta are stagnant. But we will have to turn over those bonds over time. And so we get it. And so if rates stay higher and, you know, for the next, well, I think you know some of this data better than I do uh, on how long until we have to turn over, you know, most of our debt. Um, it's not all next week, though, right? It's going to take some time before the new debt that we issue comes in and has a coupon at these higher rates. Am I correct about that? Yeah, no, that's right. And to throw some numbers on this, about 16, 17% of the, the total debt outstanding is one year or less. And so that's obviously going to turn over. But the average interest rate on that stuff is about 4.24% already. In the, in the notes, which is two to 10 years of maturity, the average interest rate on that paper those bonds is only 1.7%. And that makes that about 57% of the debt. So, you know, let's say we turn over roughly 20, maybe 25% a year. If rates stayed high in about four years, you know, you, you'd get up to this, this higher rate. Um, there's some technicalities, of course, and that really the markets need short-term bonds out there because money market funds buy those up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that it's there's some easy things I can do to manipulate these numbers to make it look really scary. 
What I won't do, though, is is drop my estimates of how politicians will keep spending other people's money at an increasing rate. That is never going to stop. So I, I don't push back on that one. I have not pushed that. That will push back on that. But the effective rate that we have to that we that the government will have to pay on that debt, I think, is uh, is a little more of a variable discussion. And I, I think uh, you know the reason why you want to bring this up is a a it's a problem, right? Spending is clearly an issue that's that will become more of a hot topic over the next coming weeks, right? With the debt ceiling discussion. Uh, but uh, I think you'd also make the argument that people managing budgets would prefer to have to pay out less, meaning lower rates, uh, to help ease a little bit of this burden. Am I correct on that? Would you agree? You mean politicians are going to put pressure on the Fed to keep rates low? I'm shocked. Well, I, th- I think somebody <laughs> will. No. <laughs> I mean, I think the Fed knows these numbers. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. And uh you know, there's a history of uh, there. There's some books out there. If I can remember them, I'll, I'll put them in the show notes. But of of Lyndon Johnson and different presidents getting into shouting matches with the head of the heads of Federal Reserve banks. So yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely going to be some pressure to keep rates low, no doubt about it. And look, I mean, if if we get a recession, you would think you know rates. The Fed would, what's the first thing they do? They lower rates. So we'll see on this. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's the, the point is that your net interest payments as a percent of the federal budget start to get increasingly large. And you still, you're, you have to pay Social Security, you have to pay Medicare. I don't know. By the way, here, here's a question I'll ask you, Jay. And I got this one from the Words and Numbers podcast. It's an economic podcast. They're really, really good, by the way. I'll put a link to it. But they threw out a stat and said, you know, if I told you, all right, first of all, I'll ask the question. Over the last two years, so from the end of, let's say, Q3 and 20 to Q3 of 22, so that's two years, how much have revenues, tax revenues collected by the U.S. Treasury gone up in that period? Well, let's see. So if I, if I had to guess and uh, I would use things like, you know, appreciation of the market and GDP and incomes and all that other kind of stuff. I'd probably be in like maybe the 20% camp, maybe. Okay. Over that period, and I was shocked when I heard this, uh, they've gone up 52%. 2.1 trillion to 3.2 trillion. They've increased tax revenue and they still are running deficits. Like really? Imagine if your income went up by 52%. And you had some debt, you'd think, oh, of course you don't need to borrow as much, but no, leave it to the federal government to borrow more and more money. What a mess. Yeah. Well, that is um, a mess. Well, I think there's probably a, a lot of people that would agree we're spending, would, would, would make the case the government is spending too much. All right. Well, we triangulate back to that. We'll leave that discussion for another time. Uh, maybe some other podcasts can do a deep dive into that and they will like words and numbers does. I'll put a link to that. But Jay, I think uh, the point is that there is pressure to keep rates down because of this. And uh, I tell you what, speaking of rates though, one of the other things, and so, you know, I love the, the John Hussman stuff and he puts out these really long pieces with a lot of graphs and stuff like that. And preparing for the podcast, I created a great regression. So I did a regression study, X, Y axis. 
I downloaded data of the nominal growth of GDP and, and the 10-year treasury yield because I know there's a relationship, in meaning that the 10-year treasury yield tends to, to hover around what the nominal growth in GDP is. So, Jay, I do all this work, and then I see something from John Hussman where he's done it better than me with a better-looking graph and everything like that. But but I think you're in good company that you at least have the same thoughts that he had. I mean, you should feel good about yeah. that. I tell you what, I am going to try and Let's get him on a podcast. Let's talk about this graph. Let's yeah, talk I'm going to try and get him on a podcast at some point. Him and I could spend three hours together talking about this. But the graph is this. And it's when you look at the growth in nominal GDP, which is not a you know, difference, it doesn't account for changes in inflation. Meaning if, you're, if your GDP, nominal GDP goes up 10%, but your inflation went up 10%, you have zero growth. So it's just looking at nominal GDP, nominal GDP at the end of the Q4 was plus 7.38% versus the 10-year treasury had a yield of 3.88%. And so you look at this and you say, all right, one of these, ha- either nominal GDP growth has to come down or the treasury yield has to come up because when you look at my chart and then you look at John Hussman's chart, which is better than mine, he looks at the 10-year trailing growth rate of nominal GDP and he compares it to the 10-year treasury yield. And guess what? When growth is down nominally, treasury yields tend to be down, Jay. So the point of this is if we get inflation to to come down, which should lower nominal GDP, okay, 10-year yields can come down. But right now there's a mismatch, Jay, in this and either yields have to come up or growth has to come down. Which is it? Yeah, yeah. it's probably a little bit of both, Derek, right? It's probably yields will come down uh, and growth will probably be fine, right? So, yeah, you're right. We're off We're off the line, right? You, you've drawn a nice line here, which kind of shows. So um, t- let's, let's, let's hit that again, right? So based off of, and I can't tell which, you know, dot plot is the most recent one here, but based off where we are today on the 10-year treasury, do you want to round to four? Are you okay rounding sure. to four? Sure. Yeah. So if we round to four, historically speaking, right, the dot plot says the, you know, nominal GDP should be somewhere between what, five to seven? Yeah, I'd give it that. Yeah. Yeah. And so and how much of that is inflation in that number? Well, I mean, I think I should have run that one as well, but I'd get, you know, inflation's been averaging what over the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so. What is that? Two and a half percent. So, yeah. So in that scenario, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're so take that off the five, right? So growth is more. GDP is more on the two. So it's you know we're probably that rates have to come down and maybe you know growth ticks a little. But you're right. We're way off the the line where we would normally be somewhere in this you know five percent versus a five percent on GDP versus four percent on the treasury. And uh, but we don't think we have you know real GDP in that five range. Right. So I, you know, listen, I think inflation has definitely kind of kept this thing close, take it out. And then I think you're way off the line. So to your question, which one happens first, it's, or what, what resolves this and brings us back to the average. To me, it's probably more of the yields eventually coming down. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think yields, yields should come down. And I mean, look, if, if you think that growth is going to be good, then the 10 year should go up. And that would be good for the markets. You want growth. You want growth in the economy. 
Yeah, I mean, like not every these days, right? Higher yields and the market's getting scared. But you know, you if you have a strong economy, higher yields are a good thing. It's it's actually expected, right? It's actually more normal. Yeah, especially 10, 20, 30 years. I mean, that's why we're inverted right now, because the market doesn't believe that we're going to have growth. And so the growth that the market believes is contained in the treasury, which is right around 4%, when when 5% are the, the real short-term treasury yields. That's how you get the inversion. There's this mismatch in expectations. But as you say, you want, like if the 10-year goes higher, your growth is going to be, should be higher based upon this. That's a good thing. So let's have some nominal growth, and I'm fine with the back end of the curve going higher. In fact, it would help investors too. Why not, right? Yep. Let's do it. Let's have that. How do we push that button? Um, well, let's let's talk to uh, – we'll have to talk to Powell about that. But then again, the Fed uh, – I don't think the Fed has done much to really – we doubt what they've done has is, is really had that much of an effect. Uh, it's overstated. But Tom Lee, by the way – Bringing it back to valuations in the markets, Tom Lee, the perennial bull who uh, goes on CNBC a lot. I don't know if he's been on Bloomberg. I think you have that corner. Uh, no, he's been on Bloomberg too, right? As well, I think, Tom Lee. I do I do think he has been on Bloomberg, yes. Yeah. Yep, yep. So he makes the point. He he thinks what? The market's going up 4,800 by the end of the year. I think that's his target, Jay, from memory, right? That's his number. That's the number he's sticking with so far. All right. I may have to throw a, a, a small flag for this chart, but what he did was he came out with something that said X Fang, and, and for Fang Plus, he calls it, that's Meta, Amazon, Netflix, Google, NVIDIA, NVIDIA, Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, that based upon the 2024 earnings per, earnings per share projection, X Fang, the market's at only 14.8 times forward 2024 earnings, not 20, 23, but 24. And he also makes the point that, you know, the NASDAQ plus FANG has had a downtrend and it's broken out recently. So I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, why not 2034 forward earnings? So I got to call a little bit of a chart crime here, but Tom Lee is saying. Yeah. That the market's getting valued on, you know, the end of a eight, you know, 19 months, 20 months in the future probably a little bit of a stretch, but that's okay. Markets, you know, he, perennial bulls know that markets lead and markets are generally up. So like, I get why he, why he thinks that, um, you know, getting through the, the nuttiness of, uh, you know, what the Fed has done last year and what it'll probably continue to do this year unofficially, uh, you know, jacking up rates, right. And raising rates to slow down growth. I could see why he would go out a little farther. I agree with you though, Derek. You know, that's you got a long time to be wrong between now and 2024, Tom. All right. So this is a semi, it's not really a chart. It's more like a graph, more like a table. Maybe it's a table crime. Can we call it a table crime? Yeah, it's 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 a two-legged table. A two-legged. <laughs> All right, Jay. Uh, Unless so, falling over. Go ahead. I know. All right. So here's the thing. You and I have been giving out some recommendations. I think I have to unrecommend something. I'm sorry to do it. Oh, the show Shrinker on Apple TV Plus. I think I'm pulling my shrinking? record. Is it shrinking, shrinking? Whatever it's. Yeah. See, I've stopped watching it. And that's my point. Sounds like you've changed it from shrinking and stinker and made it into shrinker. 
I liked it at the beginning. It just, uh, I think it jumped the shark a little bit as I keep watching the episodes. I don't know where it's going. And, uh, yeah, I'm unrecommend. I'm, it's not a recommendation anymore. I'm, I'm taking you off my conviction list. It's underweight now. It's off the list. All right. Did you finish it? Do you still like it? Uh, I haven't gone past two episodes, so maybe, maybe I was, uh, maybe I'm with you on that. It's, it's, I do think we'll finish watching it, but no, I haven't, I haven't finished it yet. All right. Any recommendations this week, Jay? Yeah. Um, I binge watched the whole series of The Consultant that's on Prime with uh, uh, Christoph Waltz. If you remember him, he's uh, he's been in a couple movies. He was in uh, Django Unchained. He was in uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, really, I, I thought it was an interesting show. And they're quick. They're like 35 minute uh, episodes. So it's not and there's only eight of them. So it's not a big time suck. So I banged that out in like two days. So that that went quick. Um, uh, and then the I have to mention the Mandalorian. So I, I got to watch the season uh, three premiere and I thought it was very good. They still got the stuff, in my opinion. So uh, those are the two I would say. I just I've never been into the Mandalorian, but I'm not into superhero movies either. I just I don't do them. I mean, my son, of course, I went to go see him with my son. I think I told you when I saw Endgame at the end, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But what's Anyway, Michael Douglas shows up. Who hasn't seen Endgame by now? Come on. Oh, I don't know. I'd never, I'd never seen any of them. And I'm like, what is Michael Douglas doing in this movie? I had no idea he was in one of the other series of – like, what, what why is Gordon Gecko showing up here? I didn't, I didn't quite get completely it. completely irrelevant uh, as to why, whether you should like or not like that movie. But that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, all but, right. Listen, here's what I'd say. You're a Star Wars – kid like you you were born in the yes. early 70s right so like you gotta stick with the mandalorian and it's not boba fett for anybody that's watches star wars mandalorian's a different guy in the in the in you know in his armor but i yeah i'm surprised you don't like it yeah yeah by the way uh we've had some good feedback on your poker face recommendation which i haven't watched yet uh michael one of the listeners to the show said uh please pass that along he he really is into that show so uh, somebody is, uh, yeah, we've made some good recommendations, but uh, yeah, I don't know if I have, uh, I, by the way, I, I, I gave a pre-recommendation last week with Mike where I said Succession's coming back the 26th. Have you seen the trail yet for Succession? It's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking, looking forward to it. Looking forward to Succession. The 26th, it's coming back. You got me into that one. Yep, absolutely. So that's, uh, I really don't have anything new to be honest with you. So I guess we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, I'm going to go trade avocado futures. There really can't be avocado futures. Can there, Jay? I, I listen, I think you would feel better owning avocado futures than Bitcoin. Just knowing you just my two cents on you. I mean, I once bought rough rice futures. I once was, I, I actually, I shorted rough rice futures. That was probably 2000, uh, when was that? 2005, six? I can't remember, Jay. But uh, yeah. All right. Well, next week we'll come back with an all new show. We'll cover the Haas avocado market in depth for three hours. Uh, but no, we won't do that. Jay, thanks again for uh, coming on today and for the, the recommendations, which apparently have been better than mine. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> all right. See you, everyone. Bye.